Welcome to another ABI podcast. I'm Ann Lawton, a professor of law at Michigan State University College of Law and the ABI resident scholar. Today I'm joined by Professor Christine Hurt, the Rex J. and Maureen E. Rawlinson Professor of Law at the J. Reuben Clark Law School at Brigham Young University. Professor Hurt has written an article entitled The Limited Liability Partnership in Bankruptcy, which is forthcoming in the American Bankruptcy Law Journal. She's here today to talk about her research. Welcome, Christine. Thanks for having me. So you discuss several problems that limited liability partnerships can run into in bankruptcy, but also in the months leading up to a bankruptcy filing. So let's talk about an LLP that files for bankruptcy. Partners have left the firm prior to the bankruptcy and taken clients with them. Right. So could you explain the significance of this unfinished business doctrine and why is it a particular problem for LLPs compared with general partnerships? Sure. So the basic difference between general partnerships and limited liability partnerships is that in a general partnership, all of the partners are on the hook for uh, unmet obligations of the firm. So if the general partnership can't satisfy all of its creditors um, at the end of its life or in the middle of its life, then those creditors can go after the general partners and their personal funds. But in a limited liability partnership, that's not the case. So it operates much more like a limited partnership or a corporation or an LLC in that the general partners, even the partners that work there every single day and that's their main um, uh, enterprise, they are not on the hook for general obligations of the partnership. So when the LLP goes insolvent, then these creditors who may not be satisfied by the assets of the LLP, they don't have any recourse against uh, the partners in the LLP. Now, the only exception is that if it's some sort of a tort that the particular partner um, participated in. So if it's malpractice against a particular attorney, that attorney is still on the hook, even if that attorney is a partner in LLP. So when you have a situation like that, then leading up to bankruptcy, uh, the partners really are looking to leave the LLP. They are not going to be on the hook uh, for these bank loans that they have out or real estate leases that they've signed for years and years. And they are all in the same boat. None of them are going to have these general obligations. And so they're all pretty um, well-situated and, and eager to make it as easy as possible for all of them to leave the LLP before the LLP um, declares bankruptcy. Now, for instance, in a law firm service partnership, uh, what the partners want to leave with are their clients. Right. And they want to take with them the matters that they were already working on is these long-standing relationships. And so um, that's what they will do, and then they will join new law firms or go out on their own, and they will start with this business that they, they took with them from the LOP. Now, of course, the LOP is in a situation to finish any sort of unfinished business because it's, um, it's firing its staff or letting them go and, and all the partners are leaving, uh, but 
until quite recently, within the last 12 months or so, um, there was a, a thought that all of that business was an asset of the partnership. And so when partners were taking these client matters with them to their their new firm, it was the same as if they were taking uh, paintings off the wall or couches or computers or or other hard assets that the, that the firm uh, might have. But we recently had some case law that suggests that um, at least some courts are saying that that no, that client matters aren't assets of the firm. They were never assets of the firm. And because clients can take their matters wherever they want, that uh, the the bankrupt LLP is not going to be able to try to claw back profits from those client matters that walked out the door. Okay. So <clears throat> you've said a lot of different things there. So let's talk about some of them. Uh, and we'll come back in a couple minutes to what some of the courts have done in the last 12 months or so. But let's talk about the clawback idea and this fraudulent conveyance problem. Okay, so can you describe for people why, if this thing is an asset of the partnership, what the problem is, right? Right. In bankruptcy, when uh, uh, firms realize that they are insolvent, and this is whether it's a corporation or a partnership or a limited partnership or whatever, um, then that corporation is supposed to keep its assets intact, right, so that you'll have as big a pie as possible in bankruptcy to carve up for your creditors. However, it is always going to be the incentive of of managers in a firm to try to to use up those assets before going into bankruptcy. And so that might mean paying off the creditors that they really, really like at 100% or uh, paying off inside creditors at 100% or paying each other big bonuses or something of that nature. So we have this fraudulent conveyance doctrine, which is enshrined in the bankruptcy uh, code um, that says that within a certain amount of time before being insolvent or nearing insolvency, you cannot make payments to people without due consideration. And if you do make payments that don't have any underlying consideration for them, um, then the trustee in bankruptcy can claw that back. So, for instance, if you were about to file bankruptcy but your firm had a big loan out, uh, you know, from your brother, you can't just pay your brother back and then declare bankruptcy if the loan wasn't due. Right. And so the court might come and you'd have to get the money back from your brother and that would go back into the bankruptcy estate so that it could be carved up for all the creditors. So what trustees of these law firm um, LLP bankruptcies have been trying to do is they've been trying to sue these other law firms that partners left and went to and and get the profits from that client business back. So if uh, partner A had uh, three different cases going, knew that the firm was going to file for bankruptcy, knew the firm was insolvent, left and went uh, to new law firms, well, now the bankruptcy trustee can sue new law firm 
to get back all of the profit uh, that new law firms received as a result of those three cases that Partner A took with him. Yeah. Okay. So the unfinished business that leaves with the partners prior to the LLP going into bankruptcy what the trustee is doing is going after the new law firm and those partners for that money that's generated by that unfinished business. That's right. Okay. That's right. And there are a lot of questions as to, well, what is profit? Because, you know, everybody gets sort of reasonable compensation and quantum area. So that's a whole other sort of bundle of of issues. But uh, what has come into sort of uh, question is the entire unfinished business doctrine okay. as far as it relates to legal client matters. Okay, so then you also talk about this case of Jewel versus Boxer mm-hmm. and what's known as the Jewel what the Jewel waiver, right? Yes. What is a Jewel waiver? In California, and this is a state law case and it was a an intermediate appellate court case. Um, a, a law firm was uh, splitting up, and uh, the different uh, partners took a sort of unfinished client matters with them, and the 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 court said, you know what, that's unfinished business. We're going to say that there's this unfinished business doctrine now, and so if you take this unfinished business uh, within the fraudulent conveyance period, and you don't give the law firm compensation for that, then we're going to be able to claw that back. Okay. But the court was uh, very specific in that case, and he said, of course, you partners could have decided this among yourselves, and you could have um, contracted around this. So after Jewel, uh, when law firms were about to go bankrupt, and, and I have to stop and say that not that many law firm, large law firms have declared bankruptcy, um, which is only why we're just now seeing this controversy. But anyway, so after the Jewel versus Boxer decision, a lot of law firms, when they were about to go bankrupt, they would have all of the partners uh, amend the partnership agreement to include what became known as a jewel waiver, and what it says is the partnership renounces any rights, any property rights, any other kind of rights that it might have to unfinished business. And so these sort of last night or midnight (laughs) uh, amendments would then allow the partners to go ahead and take the unfinished business because it's not a firm asset anymore, mm-hmm. right? And so since it's not a firm asset, the trustee can't claw it back. Unfortunately, um, the sort of second big case in this uh, string of cases was involving Brobeck, uh, the law firm, the, the Silicon Valley law, for, law firm, and Brobeck, Fleeter and Harrison, LLP, the bankruptcy bankruptcy court in the Northern District of California said, okay, the waiver is valid. However, if you sign the waiver while you're insolvent, Hmm. just the signing of the waiver is a fraudulent conveyance. Okay. Because you're 
giving away a firm property right yeah. on the eve of bankruptcy. Right. So that takes me to my next question. And you had a footnote in your paper to this effect, but there's two pieces to this. So if you executed a jewel waiver sufficiently before insolvency, right, so it's not within, mm-hmm. let's say, the two-year mm-hmm. window, or is it possible, I, I think there was one case that tried this, where you're essentially saying that the departing partners are giving some kind of equivalent value in exchange, and so then it would not be a fraudulent conveyance? Would either of those two things work? I think so. I think the first one definitely would work. However, it is not in anyone's interest to have this waiver if you don't believe the law firm is going to dissolve. Okay, so just explain why. I think because all of the partners in a very large law law firm, at least the management committee or the executive committee, they're going to want to keep the option until the very last minute of keeping client matters in the firm. Okay. Right. So, uh, as you know, bankruptcy is rarely a moment. It's usually a, a period of months, if not years, leading to bankruptcy. And so I think that probably the managers of a, of a law firm will want to be able to have some leverage over partners who are trying to leave the LLP because the biggest asset of a law firm is, of course, its, its, its lawyers. And so if you can keep your star departments, your star lawyers, those uh, practice areas that make money, if you can keep them, you can perhaps weather the storm and not declare bankruptcy. But if these star practice areas know that, that they can leave the partnership and take the client matters with them and, and not have to worry about um, fiduciary duties or duty of loyalty issues, then that will create a headlong rush into bankruptcy where perhaps you might have been able to muddle through. Gotcha. Okay, so while you can do it, it's not really in their interest to do it. So if you do it closer, however, you run into possible fraudulent conveyance problems. Exactly. Now, I would love to be able to get a hold of... um, a, a database of law firm LLP partnership agreements. Huh. But of course, they're not public, they're yes. private. Um, now, the law firms that declared bankruptcy, most of them, their partnership agreements are now in the public uh, sphere because they were exhibits to their bankruptcy plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and in all of these cases that, have been litig- that are being litigated right now, of course, that dual waiver came as an amendment to the partnership agreement, either right before declaring bankruptcy or as part of a, um, an agreement of dissolution. Okay. So let me go back to the other piece of, is there some way to draft these things where you could make out a reasonably equivalent value argument? Or is that not going to work? Uh, well, it would have to be um, maybe in... Well, 
it would have to be for either some sort of present consideration or past consideration. So either the departing attorney would, would have to pay for it, and then it would, mm. it would be a valuation issue, or if maybe the departing um, partner waived some other claim that it had. But, but I don't think that the partner would want to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I'm beginning to think, well, I mean, I, I hate to read the tea leaves, but it seems the way the courts are, are moving, law firms may not have to worry about this for very much longer. Uh, yeah, so let's go back to that, because earlier on you said that within the last 12 months or so, it seems like there's been some um, changes. So could you describe what's been going on? Sure. So um, as we all know, uh, in the financial crisis, uh, many, many law firms were hit especially hard. And there were uh, there were mergers of a lot of law firms. Um, and then some law firms just declared bankruptcy. So the, the, the big international law firms that declared bankruptcy post-2007, 2008-ish were Howry, Heller, um, Thalen, Kudair Brothers, and Dewey. Uh, and now these all have short names. When I was practicing law, they had very long names. But, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but then they merged with a lot of other firms and shortened their names, I guess. Um, but it didn't do them much good. They're all in bankruptcy right now. And last summer, so this would be the summer of 2014, um, it looked like the bankruptcy trustees in these cases were winning. Uh, so in uh, Kudair Brothers, the trustee was getting clawbacks from big New York firms. Um, uh, it was settling some of those cases, and then the courts were saying that they could um, uh, bring lawsuits against them and start this litigation. Uh, in Heller, this was happening as well. Uh, and, of course, in Howry, um, in California, this was happening uh, there was only one case where the district court was saying, I don't think uh, client matters are a partnership a asset, and that was Phelan. So then you had this split in New York between um, NRA Phelan LLP and Kudair's Brothers, uh, Kudair Brothers LLP. And so uh, what happened was is the, second, the, the Second Circuit said, we need to certify this to the New York Supreme Court. And we need the New York Supreme Court to tell us, under New York law, our client matters of a limited liability partnership that is a law firm, is that unfinished business, so that the unfinished business doctrine would apply. Because remember, what set this all in motion was Joel V. Boxer, which was an intermediate state court in California. Mm -hmm. And so the New York uh, Court of Appeals, which is the Supreme Court of New York, um, said no, said, well, they <laughs> they didn't say, no, we won't take the question. They took the question, and they said, no, um, client matters are not a partnership asset, that okay. clients have this unfettered discretion to move their matters wherever they want, um, and it's just not an asset, so the unfinished business doctrine doesn't apply. So that is going to rule out the unfinished business doctrine in um, 
the Thelen case and in the Kudair brothers case. So Heller is also in New York, so the Heller court says, well, we're going to follow that now. So now the scorecard, this is in October, uh, just flipped. And so now what you have is you have the three big on three big ongoing cases saying we don't believe that client matters are unfinished business. Howry, um, the court responds and says, well, that's New York law. This case is under the District of Columbia law, or the law of the District hmm. of Columbia. And says, and as far as we know, D.C. still has the unfinished business doctrine. So uh, all of these cases are on appeal now. So um, we'll we'll see where we where we get. Uh, Howie is on appeal. Heller is on appeal. Um, okay. Dewey, I mentioned Dewey. Um, used to be Dewey LaBeouf. Well, I guess it's still Dewey LaBeouf. Um, it's in bankruptcy. It has a lot of legal issues in that bankruptcy, and so they haven't even gotten to the unfinished business doctrine. Yeah. Okay. Now that's in New York. It will be under New York law. Uh, the unfinished business doctrine has come up in a discovery hearing because the court granted discovery um, for these claims. So granted discovery against these third-party law firms so that the trustee can pursue these unfinished business doctrine claims. Okay. Now, the that discovery was granted before the New York Court of Appeals said, we don't believe in the unfinished business doctrine. So it'll be interesting to see how that comes What out. happens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so they've said client matters aren't a partnership asset, which then means, of course, that if departing partners take that, then you don't have a clawback, you know, fraudulent conveyance problem. Right, right. So what do these courts say they are? If it's not a partnership asset, it's worth something. Right, client matters are worth something. Then we don't know what they're worth, obviously, at the point when because it's unfinished, and mm-hmm. guess, of course the client can go someplace else. But mm-hmm. what are they if they're not an asset? Uh, it is a an expectation, really, is okay. about all it is. Is that you have this okay. expectation, but you don't have any contractual right. Uh, you don't have a claim against the client for leaving. And one of the arguments right. that I, I thought was uh, particularly compelling, and this is in, I think, one of the, the, the briefs in the oral argument, is that if it is an asset, then it could be auctioned off in the bankruptcy estate. Mm-hmm. And we know that that can't be true. Right. right. If, you're, if you're a client of a law firm, your, your matter can't just be auctioned off to that highest bidder. Right. Um, so it is strange when we think about assets and we think about property, it doesn't have a lot of those characteristics. It can't be alienated. Um, but what's interesting also to me is that, um, uh, so for instance, Dewey LaBeouf had $150 million in privately placed bonds outstanding. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you next. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, which is a a whole conversation in and of itself as to to why a law firm would need to, um, to place $150 million in bonds. Um, 
But it did, and if you go back and you read that credit agreement, or the trust indenture, there's a trust indenture, and there's a security agreement, and those bondholders, they believed they were senior secured bondholders, and they believed that Mm. their their bonds were secured by works in progress. Mm -hmm. And works in progress was defined as being these client matters, which now, of course, the New York Court of Appeals has just said, that's not even an asset. Mm-hmm. So then what effect does it have on law firms who are trying to borrow money? Yeah, so I guess, you know, as, as you mentioned, it's a question, right? Does this affect the credit markets? Because law firms generally do have lines of credit. Now, in g- strong, <laughs> well-managed law firms, these lines of credit are merely meant to provide liquidity and they're zeroed out at the end of the year. Uh, but mm-hmm. they are just meant to allow them to make distributions and, and and pay salaries, even though most clients pay their bill at the end of the year. Um, but some law firms, they, um, they have larger and longer lines of credit. And, of course, the law firms that I mentioned that were in bankruptcy uh, did have very large, um, uh, credit facilities um, with Citibank or Bank of America. Uh, so it would be interesting to ask those bankers, did you ever really think that you had a security interest in works in progress? And my intuition is that they will say, we thought we had a securities interest in accounts receivable, mm-hmm. but not but not in works in progress. Yeah, okay. So... And there is a distinction to be made, right? The, un- the unfinished business doctrine, it is not trying to get at accounts receivable, right? For work that's already been billed, that's, um, that's just an accounts receivable. Um, this is about work that has not not yet been performed. Right. Okay. So let me go back to something else that you were talking about, how there's now these three big cases, right, in New York, where the court has said the client matters are not a partnership asset. And then you mentioned Howery, mm-hmm. which says, well, it's not New York law, D.C. So that, there's something else you talk about in your piece, and that's about the choice of law issues. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why would a choice of law provision... So if you have a choice of law provision in your LLP agreement, why would that not govern deciding what client matters are or are not firm property? The partnership agreement, it governs the internal affairs of the partnership. So if it says the internal affairs of this partnership will be governed by New York law, right, the New York partnership is going to control as to what is, um, as to those matters that we consider partnership law. What may be going on here, and I think this is uh, what the New York courts would say, is that this isn't a question of partnership law. Whether or not the client matter is property is property law. It's not partnership okay. law. Okay. And so uh, the choice of law of the partnership agreement is not going to control. So we are going to have to go to ordinary conflict of law doctrine to figure out which law applies. And so in these New York courts, they said that New York law applied because 
the firms were mainly in New York. Most of the partners that left were based in New York, and they went to New York law firms. Now, the Howry Court is sitting in California, and it is applying the law of the District of Columbia because the partnership agreement chose D.C. law. So not only do we have a split uh, in the court as to what the law is, but we even have a split in as to how you choose which law governs. Oh, gosh, that's a mess. Yeah, so it is a mess. So, you know, lawyers love certainty. So if your firm <laughs> were dissolving or you were going to start a firm even and you were thinking about this, uh, would you want to say in your partnership agreement, New York law controls, just in case uh, it gets filed in California? Would you, um, if you were leaving a law firm, would you want to make sure that you went to a New York law firm and not a D.C. law firm? Uh, mm. it's, there are a lot of, of, of funny considerations to that. But hopefully we will get some, some kind of clarity but I don't know if we're going to get clarity on both issues. Okay. Uh, another thing that I wanted to talk to you about in your paper is you also sort of take aim at some of the code's definitions. And this has been uh, an issue I've seen as well, which is we've got all these new entities, and the code's definitions haven't been changed. They're from 1978. <laughs> And so what problems do you see with regard to the definitions in LLPs? You, you talk about 540AB as one example, but I think you give others in the paper. Yeah, so the LLP has only been around um, since about 1993. Um, the, I was just looking at some statistics this morning. The IRS didn't start counting them until 1998, actually. And so hmm. uh, LLPs make up a, a, a small part of the business economy. So even the last year that the, IRS, that the IRS has data for is 2012, and there were 129,000 LLPs. And that's compared to 2.2 million limited liability companies. Hmm. So, and and 1.6 million corporations and about 23 million sole proprietorships. So uh, LLPs are a pretty small segment of the economy. So, so maybe it's too much to ask that the bankruptcy code would have a specific LLP chapter or or an LLP <laughs> definition. A definition would be nice. <laughs> but the, I, so in one of the 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 Dewey cases, they actually had to argue this. They had briefs about it, and they had to have oral argument, and there had to be an opinion as to whether or not Dewey LaBeouf would be considered a corporation under the bankruptcy code. And that just mm. seems like, well, surely we should have figured that out before mm -hmm. now, uh, whether an LLP is going to be considered a corporation under the bankruptcy code. Um, so, uh, yes, there is a, a definition in the bankruptcy code. Uh, corporation excludes partnerships, but then covers them again because a partnership association where the creditors look solely to the capital of the partnership, well, that's considered a corporation. So that's the answer in the Dewey case and the answer in all of these cases, but it just seems like you shouldn't have to go through so much 
you know, convolutions to, to get there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's also uh, an issue, well, not an issue, but I guess there's an argument to be made that in, in an LLP, the creditors don't solely look to the capital of the entity because they don't in malpractice cases. So, but hmm. um, whatever, we're going to let it in as a corporation under the big yeah. code. So, so, yeah, so there could definitely be some revisions given uh, to the bankruptcy code in the definitions, in the definition of distribution, in the definition of fraudulent conveyance as to what is a general partnership distribution. Because the LP is just a funny thing, and an LLC is also very much like an, an LLP if it's a member-managed LLC, in that you have this entity where you have the right of everyone to co-manage, but they're not liable for the debts of the partnership, and that creates some really weird incentives, which are the incentives that you see in these really fascinating law firm cases where right before they, right before the partners vote to uh, dissolve, they also just carve up the spoils with one another, and they, ah. and, and they name certain people... Uh, the the wind up executive chair and the wind up executive chair is going to get two million dollars. So wind up, yeah. you know, or something <sighs> like that. Uh, and uh, it, it's it's just a I don't know a, a very interesting combination of management rights and limited liability, which um, the bankruptcy code just doesn't seem to contemplate very well. But I remember when I started to write this piece. Because I write a lot about partnerships, but I don't write about bankruptcy. And so when I started doing research, you know, there aren't that many scholarly articles about partnerships and bankruptcy. Um, Mm. So I think one of those seminal articles I read was written in the 60s. So it does seem like there could be some reimagining how we treat the limited partnership, the limited liability partnership, and the LLC in bankruptcy. Yeah. So when you let me go back to you said that um, there are these incentives to sort of carve up the spoils. Could the trustee go after the partners for you know for taking partnership money? In other words, try and claw back some of that stuff. Yeah. So. Um, in partnerships, generally under the UPA and the RUPA, um, and almost every state is one or the other, um, partners actually aren't owed compensation. Um, they're supposed to just get a distribution of the profits. Um, okay. Now, that creates... So we have to have a lot of, of strange uh, tax rules to try to decide when... Uh, you pay your partner, whether that's salary or whether that's the return on capital and things like that. But the REPA does say uh, that partners can have reasonable compensation for winding up winding up activities. Okay. Um, but, you know, somebody has to wind it up. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and their time is, is obviously pretty valuable. But you know, the it's not the trustee who's choosing the wind-up chair, right? It's not a, a court-appointed wind-up chair. It is 
that the executive committee got together and they created a wind-up committee. And it just so happens that winding up the law firm can be pretty lucrative. Um, okay. So uh, there are some, there may be some fiduciary uh, duties at play there. Uh, that if the people on the executive committee somehow end up on the wind-up committee, that they're is a conflict of interest or some kind of self-dealing. But on mm. the other hand, we we want law firms to wind down in an orderly manner, and it is probably better for there to be a wind-up committee than for there not to be a wind-up committee. Right. Yeah. Have you seen any cases with the trustee going after those monies that were distributed before the bankruptcy filing? Uh, yes. So in... All of these cases, before they even got to the unfinished business doctrine, they went, the the bankruptcy trustee went after uh, the partners of the law firm who all seemed to receive distributions right up until (laughs) the eve of bankruptcy, even though the firm was insolvent. Uh, So particularly Dewey, I I mentioned that the the bankruptcy of of Dewey LaBeouf has has some interesting issues. It has a securities fraud bondholder issue, which, you know, is, is unique to the law firm setting. Uh, but it, it also has um, that issue where the bankruptcy trustee is trying to claw, and has been very successful at it, in clawing back distributions made to partners in the year or two leading up to the bankruptcy. Okay. So, um, uh, and this happened in the other law firm bankruptcies, too. The The law firms did not have enough money to, to make normal distributions, so they were drawing on their line of credit to pay distributions. Um, ah, I see. And, okay. Yeah, and they, and they weren't ramping down their distributions or scaling them down. Um, okay. They were, you know, because they treat them like salaries and that these partners are used to a certain kind of lifestyle and a certain salary, and so... They wanted to maintain that, uh, mm-hmm. but they were <laughs> they were doing that when uh, the firm wasn't solvent. And so again, what was that compensation, or is it a return on your capital? Is it a fraudulent conveyance? And so, in the Dewey case, they had a global settlement settlement um, where partners, from junior partners to senior partners, they played they paid varying amounts according to a formula. Uh, but many partners weren't um, party to that. They refused to be a party to that, and so the trustees had to go after them individually. Okay. And that's independent of the unfinished business stuff. Doctor. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. That is under okay. well-established fraudulent Okay, so, Christine, I'm just curious. I, I think I know how you come out, but I'm curious as to how you think these unfinished business doctrine cases should come out. Well, I do have uh, an opinion as to how I think the cases should come out, and I hope that my opinion is is unbiased and objective. Okay. I I seem to agree with the New York Court of Appeals, and that resonates with me, that these client matters should not be assets of the partnership, and so the unfinished business doctrine shouldn't apply. Now, I do have to say, though, that some of the policy rationales that the New York Court of Appeals gave are very self-interested pro-lawyer policy 
announcements, right? So the New York Court of Appeals said, well, this should be the rule because um, we believe in client autonomy. Well, I believe in client autonomy, obviously. And so, yes, I believe that clients should be able to take their cases to whomever they want to handle their cases. The court also mentioned that if we have a rule where we don't have unfinished business or the unfinished business doctrine, that that rule would facilitate um, lawyers getting new jobs. Right. So if we, if if we have this unfinished business doctrine, then it's harder for partner A to call up new law firm and say, I think my law firm is going under. Do you think you could use somebody like me? Right. That that new law firm is going to say, well, why would I take you if I just have to give all the money back to the bankruptcy ah. trustee? So it is a very pro-lawyer rule. Uh, the limited liability partnership as an entity is a very pro-lawyer entity. It was created by lawyers for lawyers so that lawyers could be in law firms without having unlimited personal liability. So I, I don't want to be part of this <laughs> sort of race to the, I guess it wouldn't be called a race to the bottom, but, 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 but part of this very pro-lawyer, um, public choice, get legislation, get court decisions that favor lawyers just for that reason. I also think that it doesn't make sense to call client matters assets because, again, you can't auction them off, you can't alienate them. Yes, we granted security interest in them, but perhaps that we shouldn't have been able to do that either. Okay. All right, well, thank you, Christine, for discussing your interesting article on LLPs in bankruptcy. Professor Hurt's article is forthcoming in the American Bankruptcy Law Journal if you'd like to delve deeper into the subject. This is Ann Lawton with another ABI podcast. Thank you for listening. 